0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska, that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. If you turn in your Bibles, uh, I'd appreciate it to First Timothy chapter four, verses one through five. This is a this is really an interesting passage. Especially after coming off of chapter 3 when he was talking about leadership and elders and all the rest of the thing. And all of a sudden we get into now some of the things that are happening in the town in which Timothy found himself, which was Ephesus. It was uh, a very pagan city full of all sorts of different beliefs and religions and practices and, and all. So Timothy, a young man, finds himself there. And so Paul, of course, is encouraging him throughout this entire letter but let's read that together. I'm going to read the first five verses. And I know if you have them in your Bibles, you can, you can follow along. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience, conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now that, that is an interesting passage. And he starts out by saying something that we've probably heard him say before, he talks about the last days or the latter days. In the verse 1, he says, the Spirit expressly says, the Holy Spirit, that in latter times, in the last time, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And it's really interesting. You might ask yourself the question. I'll ask you the question. When do you think he speaks of those times? What do you believe those actually are? And when do you think they are going to start or have they started. (laughs) Now we think how long ago this letter was written was almost 2,000 years ago. So a lot of stuff and centuries have passed since Paul wrote this letter. And yet he says in latter times some will fall away from the faith and then goes right on to say right there where Timothy is at that some have already begun to fall away from the faith. So we have dealt with this situation. We've dealt with this challenge for the last 2,000 years. They only had dealt with it for a few years by this time. The church was really young. <clears throat> the message of the gospel was young. And yet still, even in that short period of time, the latter days began. So in the, the last days to God, you know, a 1,000 a a thousand years is, is like a day to the Lord. You know, We've been dealing with this now for a long time but the last days the latter days began oh so long ago it didn't take very long what is the what is the problem with man they have it didn't take but just a few years maybe even a few days to all of a sudden begin to mess with the gospel isn't that bizarre don't you think that's rather strange it is our, that's why i've titled this message the true gospel protect it And hold on to it. And I'm sure Paul would agree with that as he wrote his letter. So 2,000 years later, we find ourselves still in the same situation where we're dealing with those same kinds of things. So that's just kind of a side to begin the message. But the the real meat of it starts in verse 2 and 3 when he talks about the lies of the enemy. Now he gets really bold. Paul is not afraid to talk about some really serious things. He's not also afraid to name something that is what we might consider rather drastic. He is very comfortable in saying that there are doctrines of demons. Now, you can't, go to, you can't go online, you can't go to Amazon and find a, go to a theology section there and start buying some books and look for a book that was written by a demon. <coughs> right? But doctrines of demons are very real, and they are, what's the word doctrine mean? Doctrine means to teach, teach something, right? It's a, it's a teaching. There are teachings of demons that are not really good. Somehow they get that message through <clears throat> easily to mankind. That kind of darkness is grabbed onto by a lot of people. And it's very easy to fall into what Paul would call, very boldly I say, very boldly call them doctrines of demons. Now, there's a lot of people who don't even believe in demons, but Scripture talks about them. talks about not only doctrines of demons, but talks about those that we can see and touch and feel, other human beings that teach those doctrines of demons. And Paul says, wow, we're supposed to avoid those like the plague. So who is the enemy? He goes on to take it from from the dark realm. He takes it to... Mankind And man oftentimes has the ability to not just lie, as he says, he calls them liars, but he also calls them, in my version it says, speaking lies in hypocrisy. So it's one thing to be a liar, it's another thing to be a hypocritical liar. In other words, a hypocritical liar is one who would teach like these guys were teaching that, that Timothy was having to deal with, Those kind of lies, not only are they untrue, but they are taught by guys that don't have anything, don't want to practice them themselves. They want you to have to practice them. They don't have to go along with them themselves. And so a hypocritical liar is what Paul is talking about here. So he's he's really bold in what he's saying here about what and how important the gospel is. In, in, Second Corinthians, or in, in Galatians, I had it marked, there it is, <coughs> in Galatians chapter 1, Paul, of course, is the writer again, he says in verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him. I mean, Galatians was one of the first books that would have been written, it wasn't very old, okay, it was just shortly after Christ um, left this earth. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you that we have preached to you, let him be, and here's here's another big word that Paul uses, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Uh, Paul has some of the most beautiful words to express his message. What possesses men and women? What possesses mankind? This is a good question I want you to think about. What possesses them to always want to change or delete or to add to the message of the gospel? What is it about us that always finds ourselves wanting to do something different or change or add or delete something that has been laid down from the very beginning? When you think about all the things that have happened in the last 2,000 years, there have been there have been doctrines that have taught, there have been changes in the church, there have been church teachings that have been absolutely ridiculous. There have been times in, in mankind's life during the uh, first thousand years after Christ, oh my gosh, life was terrible, and, and, and the church did some things that were really unbelievable, and yet, and some of the things they believed, and some of the things that they adopted. And by the time the Reformation came, came and we find ourselves now in, in a in a time in 2019 where the gospel, for some reason, has survived all these 2,000 years. And the message of it, the meaning of it, what we believe about it, has not changed one iota. Where the trouble has come is when man has tried to add to it, particularly add to it, not necessarily take away, but men, we are we are good at adding to something to make us look better. In other words, if you... we it kind of shows us that the simplicity of the message, is not a simple message in that it's mindless. It's simple in that it's easy to, to share with somebody the true gospel of Christ, what it means that he lived and died and rose again for the, for the remission of sins. A very simple message that, that changes people's lives and continues throughout all these years to change people's lives. But when we begin to add things, traditions to it, we add works to it, We add rules to it. We add human efforts to it. Why? To make us, I guess, and Paul is saying, it makes the person that's doing that and feeling better about themselves, it makes them feel sometimes that they are better than someone else. And Paul says, never think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Right? We never should be in a position where because of what I practice or what you practice puts us or elevates us above somebody else right? That's not the gospel. That's not truth. That's not the way life is supposed to be. The lies of the enemy. (coughs) What is it that makes us where we're not completely satisfied to just leave the message alone? Right? And so what did... Paul just picks on a couple here, okay? Paul in his letters, in Galatians particularly, and in Timothy here, and in other passages, deals with two things that people got involved with at an early stage back in his day. One was, if you read the book of Galatians, was the idea of legalism. Legalism is simply, in his mind, was, (coughs) as we were talking about, as we read in the first chapter, why have you fallen away from this so soon? Why has it not taken you very long to all of a sudden try to come up with a whole whole other gospel, in which Paul says there is no other gospel. So don't don't try to rename the gospel or change it or, or bring, bring something new to it that wasn't there before. Legalism was something that he was fighting there, there. And, and combining the law, the law that they were used to, and combining that somehow with the, with, with the gospel of Christ oftentimes led to problems. <coughs> Legalism is an effort to attach laws, rules, or regulations to the gospel. It's a mixture of God's grace and human effort creating a mongrel version of the gospel remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9 you know the story of the of the putting new wine in old wineskins he was talking about in his day understanding that that what they wanted from him was to be a, a good follower of the law of Moses okay which All his life he was. And yet he was bringing a new message, a new message that would liberate them from the fact that they could never, ever, ever live up to what the law demanded of them. The law was meant, Paul said, to what? To reveal sin, to show us that we are sinners, to show us that we cannot, we have a hard enough time obeying the laws of the land here, right? We have a hard time doing that, but that it's meant to keep us from getting ourselves in huge trouble. But the law in that what Jesus was talking about showed them what sinners they were, and he came to fix that problem. And so he's saying, you, cannot, you can't take me and combine it with your system that you have right now because it will literally explode. If you try to put new wine into old wineskins, what happens to the wineskin in those days? It has already had wine in it. The fermentation process has weakened that. Wine skin, and if you put new wine in it, and that fermentation begins again, <clears throat> the bag explodes. It literally can't hold it. You can only put new wine in a new wine skin. The two, Jesus and the and the law of the day, did not mat, match at all. You know, it's Abraham or Paul says talks about Abraham in Galatians when he's arguing against when he's arguing against legalism, he says, first you had the Abrahamic promise where God came to Abraham and said, by faith you believe, believe and you will will be mine. And Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as what? As righteousness. And Paul says then 430 years later, after Abraham comes the Mosaic law, right alongside of that promise. That promise wasn't stopped at that point. That promise kept on going, but the law was given to make sure that we really understood what it meant to be a sinner, because law reveals that. The law did not replace the promise of Abraham. In fact, the promise of Abraham still lives today. In 2019, we are still under that promise. Jesus fulfilled that promise. We, by faith, are made righteous because of what we do? No. Because of what Jesus has done. There's nothing I can add to that to make it any better. So legalism was one thing he tackled. That was a bit, and I think today we probably have some of that as well, where we try to add things to it. The other was a fancy word that, that Paul is dealing with here in 1 Timothy 4, <clears throat> is this word asceticism. You've probably heard that word before, but simply what that meant, an, an ascetic was someone who lived a religious discipline that involves the intentional intentional denial of things that God has declared to be good. Let me say that again. An ascetic would would live a religious discipline that involves the intentional intentional denial of things that God has declared to be good. You go through the early the early church and what happened later when the Catholic Church began the Catholic Church land, lasted for a long time throughout those 2000 years. And during that time there were things that they did that were basically following this sort of teaching, this ascetic teaching. What what were monks? Monks were people who didn't get married. They didn't participate in the in the normal things of life, the good things that God has laid down. They didn't get married. They didn't eat certain things. They lived a life of denial. And so that was not that isn't new to what Paul is talking about here. That has been going on for a long time. So, what are the things that they're forbidding in chapter in chapter four of First Timothy? (coughs) Food and marriage. Okay. Now, why in the world anybody would would want to throw marriage out the window? To me, just blows my mind. And why they'd ever want to throw certain foods out? (laughs) That's just not on my in my repertoire. But you know, it's funny. By the time the human or by the time the uh, the Reformation began. And things began to change. If I if asked you about what type of a person was a Puritan, we had Puritans that came to this country, right, very early, even before we actually became a country. When you think of the word Puritan, I bet you in nickel you think there's somebody who's really, you know, a Puritan was really strict, was very serious, was, was kind of harsh in the way they dealt with people, and of cold, right? The Puritans were, believe it or not, when it came to the idea of marriage, they had revolutionized, basically, for that time, what it really meant to unite yourself, a man and a woman, together. What it meant. How holy that was. How wonderful that was. What it meant to become one flesh with another human being. No more was it just strictly for procreation. That's all it was good for, for hundreds and thousands. Uh, decades and centuries, it was strictly for procreation and, the, and keep the human race going. But they realized that what scripture says about marriage and becoming one flesh was a beautiful thing that requires respect and admiration from both, a commitment by both to live a life that was godly and also as a result to produce a family of children that would love the Lord. And so you think about Puritans that way, you think, wow, that's, that's revolutionary for their time. Because marriage was very sacred to them, and yet up to that point had become merely an exercise of necessity. And there were many who f- would, would fall away from it, who had nothing to do with it. And so marriage was, was not something that was totally respected. Food was another thing. There are still in you know two thousand years later, there are still those that do not eat certain things, which I could care less in my personal life or in your personal life which foods you eat and which foods you don't and which you think are good and which you think are not. But Paul is very clear on what happens when this becomes either this idea of, of refraining from marriage or this idea of, of abstaining from foods, if that becomes something that becomes your part of your salvation, part of, of your uh, being a Christian. There's no way that you can be a Christian without doing these things. And it's like, that is not at all the message that Paul wanted to, to give to us. The two becoming one was important. As a result, this idea that Timothy was facing in Ephesus was really kind of a diabolical one. And I think that's why he calls it a doctrine of demons, because it what it does is it is nothing more than really a slam on God the creator who created all things to be good. And it's also a slam on the sufficiency of Christ, of his work at the cross. And the minute we, the minute we denigrate that in any way, we become a cult. We become, we become a group that teaches something that is basically heresy. And we do not want that. The cross and what was accomplished at the cross is so central to what we believe and how it changes and affects our lives that the minute we add to it or take away from it, we, in a sense, we are what Paul is calling falling away from the faith. And that is not something we ever want to do. God is never properly worshipped by the denial of his gifts. <laughs> is, is denial and making us and everyone around us miserable really the way to wear a badge of spirituality my being spiritual misery is not a path to spirituality As i told you before i studied in europe many many years ago and i went to i went to spain during the easter and lent time and it's a big deal in a catholic country to before lent starts that's where mardi gras came but in spain in Barcelona, they would, they would have a huge parade. And they would have this giant statue of Mary, beautiful, surrounded by candles, carrying it on, on their shoulders as they're walking through the parade, leading the parade. But behind her, and remember, this is the beginning of Lent, and what happens in, in Lent is you give up something or you deny yourself something in order to, I guess, in a sense, be more spiritual. But there were literally hundreds of men following the Statue of Mary with their shirts off, crawling on their knees with a rope or whatever they had in their hand, beating themselves on the back as they crawled along the street during this parade. To show what? To show that they were denying themselves and even mutilating themselves hurting themselves in order to look more, what, spiritual. And that, that, that ain't right. <laughs> that, that's work righteousness. Man's tendency is to always think of something that I can do on the outside, not only that shows God that I am really serious about my commitment to him, that's one thing, but to, to, for me to want to show you how spiritual I am, these are the things that I'm going to do. And Paul never, ever supports that. He hates that. He makes it very clear that that is absolutely wrong. You know, we don't use that word asceticism very often. I don't think I've ever used it in a conversation. But oftentimes, we do take what God has meant for good, and turned it into something that is ridiculous. So in a, in a way, when you think about it, how, how over all these centuries are we still preaching the same gospel that Paul preached? I think that is an absolute miracle, that through his word and by his spirit, we have been able to keep the message of the gospel. We may swing this way for a little while. We may swing over here for a little while, but we always come back to the very central part of the message of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished and what that means for me and for you and how we are supposed to live our lives. I don't know if you've ever heard of the philosopher, good philosopher Francis Schaefer. You've probably heard his name. He wrote a book called, How Should We Then Live? <laughs> in other words, once, once that has taken place in our hearts, that we have given ourselves over to God, we have given ourselves through Christ by faith into his family, now what? How should we then live? Whether you live in China, <clears throat> whether you live in North Korea, whether you live in the United States, whatever country a believer finds themselves in, Paul in some really interesting countries, Timothy in a town that was not at all receptive to this gospel. How then, once that change has happened to us, how are we supposed to live? And that's where I'm going to ask you this question. Which is easier? When you look at those verses, I'll read those first. having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from food, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. <clears throat> so what is easier for you and me? I know how I would answer. I don't know how you would answer. Is it easier to live... According to a list of rules and regulations, thinking that if you just check off all these on this list, yep, I'm doing that, yep, I'm doing that, yep, I'm doing that. Is it easier to live that way, or is it easier to live according to a combination of not only what the Word says, but what the Spirit, what the Holy Spirit, what He wants us to do? We talked about it as we opened this morning, about in the, in the prayer room this morning about when the, when the Spirit of God prompts you to do something, and you, out of fear or whatever, at first you kind of balk at it, and you, you just simply are, are just afraid to do it. And yet, when you do it, when you boldly step up and do what it is for that particular thing that God wants you to do, it's like everything's lifted. It's a wonderful experience. Last night I was, we were, Aline and I were sitting in the family room, and I said, "It was nine o'clock," and usually about nine o'clock before I, before I'm going to preach on Sunday, I start to get these flutterings in my stomach and these, these concerns, these, is this really going to go well? Am I going to? Is can I can I really do this? And Anine says, "Yeah, that's pretty normal," but what that is, <clears throat> is God telling you. This is is something I want you to do, and if you depend on me to do it, then everything will be okay. Because I don't know about you, but if you're about to do something big, you get that thing in your stomach that just says, oh, I don't know if I can do that. That's probably exactly where God wants you to be. Because at that moment, you immediately give yourself over to the Spirit of God to do what he wants to do sure it's easier to live and in my opinion it's easier to do the first in other words to live by a list if you just give me a hundred things that I have to do in my life and I just check them off and things that I have to obey things that I have to say things that I have to do or you just tell me you listen to not only what the word says but you listen to what the spirit says and when that situation comes up in your life you respond to it the way that he wants you to respond that's what makes the Christian life so challenging. And in a sense, oftentimes it can be difficult because there are choices that we have to make every single day. The choices I make today aren't going to be the ones that I have to mess with tomorrow because that's a whole new slate tomorrow. Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. You worry about today. And I say, okay, that's so hard for me to do, but I'll do it. So when those situations come up and when those Uh, when those uh, options come up to you where you have to make some sort of a choice, where someone crosses your path that you had no idea was going to cross your path that day and had some particular need or had some question that, that you needed to answer, that's when God takes over. That's when the gospel really comes to life. And so it's, in the Christian life, it can be complicated, but he says, Paul says, everything needs to be done with thanksgiving and received with thanksgiving. Okay, so those are, you know, the lies of the enemy, that's the first part. But then if you're going to be, I think as Christians, if we're going to be radical about anything, okay? And coming out of the 60s to be radical was was a cool thing. Was to really get excited about something to really grab onto something that was going to change the world, right? Unfortunately, a lot of things changed in the world. Some of them were good and some of them weren't. But that's just, that's just life. But when it comes to our Christian life, there are things that we should really be radical about. And there's there's tons of them. I, I just listed a few. <clears throat> Let's be radical and unchanging about the solid foundation of God's word. What does 2 Second, Second Timothy 3.16 says? God's word... Is inspired. It's God breathed, and is profitable for correction, for teaching, for righteousness, for all these things. God's word is true, and that is a that's a foundation. That if we ever change it, if we ever alter it, I guarantee it would would automatically change everything that we do as a church, not only as a local church, but as families the solid foundation of God's word, the sovereignty of God the Father. He's infinite. He's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. He's all-powerful. He's always here. He's always holy. He's always righteous. He's always good. You can find unbelievable amounts of verses to support that. That's something we should be extremely radical about, that God is sovereign over history and future history. He is sovereign over this world. And that is a comfort to us as believers but it's also a truth that holds this world together. Another one is that the deity of Christ. What does John 1.1 1, 1 say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then further down it says, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, who's that? That's Jesus. The Word is Jesus. Jesus, the deity of Christ, is something that if... And John writes it so simply in First John over and over again... He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, those, that's the one who's born of Him. The deity of Christ is so important to understand the God-man that lived here and still lives. The reality of the Holy Spirit. We talked about the Holy Spirit a lot already today. When the Spirit prompts you to do something, He is the Spirit of truth that leads us into truth. He is the one that will, Jesus said will guide us into all truth in John 16. And then we're very radical about the redemption through the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. Romans 10:9 says if you believe in your if you I always forget how this starts. Romans 10 I got I got to read it to you cuz it's such an important verse. Verse 9 For if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So there is a redemption that comes for men and women as they give their lives to Christ. And finally, salvation by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, By grace you are saved through faith. That not of yourselves; it's a gift of God. And then that last part is so good, and just kind of capstones what we've been talking about. Lest anyone should boast, I cannot boast about what Jesus. I can boast of what Jesus has done for me, but I cannot boast for being so good that God let me into His kingdom. No matter what good I did, and no matter what good you and I have done throughout our lives. That's never quite enough to get us there because Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So those we have to be radical about that. We don't want that message to change. You can find churches today, unfortunately, throughout the world <coughs> that do not hold to these. And there are so many more that I could write. We just don't have the time. But they, there are those that have given up on those things. They have given up on that message. They have changed it. To a degree that the gospel no longer means what it meant when it was written. It no longer is something that effectually changes and absolutely transforms a person's life. You know, what's the big deal? Jesus, Jesus, uh, he wasn't really God. He was just a son of God. He was just a man. He lived a good life. There are things that he did that that we should exemplify. That wasn't why he came. And so that message has to remain the same. Nothing can be taken from it. Nothing can be added to it. John says it this way, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. John has, when when you study Greek, if you study the Greek language and want to learn it, you go to the Gospel, the first letter of John, Because he writes so, he uses words that are really easy to to translate. And he puts them in phrases that are really easy to figure out. But they are some of the most powerful messages you will ever read in Scripture, is what John wrote. If you love the Father, he says, you're going to love those around you. That's basically what he's saying. And where do we sometimes fall? Where do we sometimes slip up? Where do we err as humans is in our relationship with each other. Uh, You can write down people on a piece of paper I'm sure that you don't like. Or people that you see on TV that you just can't stand. Or politicians that drive you crazy. Or preachers that you see on TV sometimes that will literally make you see red. Or someone does something to you that is so hurtful and so in your first opinion, so unforgivable. That you don't want anything to do with that person again. And golly, you go back to you go back to John and he says, huh, sorry, that that excuse doesn't cut it. When we love the Father, when we love God the Father, we love those around us. And that that should be something we write on our tombstone. That somebody writes on our tombstone, this this guy, this woman, loved. I told you about one guy that can't remember his name. He was um, he was a comedian from way, way, way back. Funny guy. His name just escaped, escapes me. But he he had put on his tombstone all it said was, "I told you I was sick." <laughs> I want more on mine. I don't you know. I don't necessarily want it on the tombstone. I, I just want, and you just want. In the memories of people, as as if when you are gone, that there's things that they remember about you and about me that they like. You left some sort of legacy, and we have to do it with our kids all the time. We have to do it with our friends, but we also have to do it with strangers. When you go to Walmart, how do you treat the people there that work there? Bryce could probably tell stories of some of the customers that he has to deal with, but. How do we act, not just here, how do we put the gospel message into practice here in this body, right here today, and then when we leave, how do we put it into practice? And that's where Paul is saying, don't, don't confuse yourself with things that are just going to bog you down, rules and regulations and, and things that you adhere to that are simply going to, in a sense, make you a miserable person. We don't don't want to be that way. And I also don't want to to have that list, and if my list is longer than yours, and I'm doing my list better than yours, then I can look down on you and say, see, I'm a better person than you are, because I've followed rules one through ten, and you, you only made it through the first five. That's not at all the way that God intended for this to be. And so after all these years, The gospel is still true, and yet it still has to be protected. And we have to hold on to it. The final thing he says is talking about thanksgiving, and that's just in a simple conclusion today, in a a, uh, commentary that Joe gave me to look at for preparing for this message. Philip Riken is his name. (laughs) But when he talked about this passage, he said, and I couldn't say it any better, he said, the last thing to be said about the origins of bad theology is that gratitude is essential to sound theology. Thanksgiving is so important to daily Christian life that anyone who rejects God's good gifts runs the risk of abandoning the faith. These are good words. These are, this scripture, this passage, at first when I read it, I thought, oh, man, this is a weird one. And yet, Paul is so clear about how we are to respond and protect and guarantee that the same gospel message that saved me and you will save our kids. Still true, and that, in my, in my opinion, you know, having this book first of all is probably one of the biggest miracles that you'll carry around in your life. That we actually have it, and that, written by so many different people so long ago, we still have the truth of what they said. But the miracle of of guarding and protecting that which, even though we're you know we're what does peter calls us a peculiar people (laughs) and i'd be the first to say i i'm peculiar you're peculiar we're all odd. we all have our own little things that make us who we are right that people look at and say oh i know i know joe that's the way he acts i know you that's the way i've been around you long enough to know some of the characteristics you know in your life and so everybody is different and and peculiar is a good word, not a bad word. Peculiar isn't odd. Peculiar is that God made us all different. And yet that same, in that difference, that same message that the gospel proclaims, fits everybody. No matter where you are, what, who you are, what language you speak, how old you are, how young you are, it doesn't matter. The message still applies to you and me. But what a, I think... In my mind, that's a miracle. Protect it and hold on to it. Let's stand together and and close in prayer, shall we? Father, as we think about what you've written in your word, even for those words that we read today, your Bible is so big and so uh, we would never, ever, ever no one completely understand it all. <clears throat> and yet when we take these five verses today and apply them to our lives, we look at the mighty proclamation of your gospel. We thank you, Lord, that even 2000 years ago, Timothy lived in a a town maybe similar to ours. He experienced some of the same things that we experience right here all these years later. And Father, I thank you that as we live according to your word and spirit, as your Holy Spirit speaks to us in a way and says, do this, talk to this person, give to this person, speak this way to someone, live this way, that we can willingly, and in a miraculous way, actually do your will. As flawed as we are, and as uh, we are still in this mortal body, Father, that sometimes plagues us and gets us involved in things we shouldn't be involved in, whatever. You still, through your spirit indwelling in us, you have the ability and the power to encourage us to do things. In a right way to live in a righteous way father I ask first of all that we would be compliant that we would be willing vessels to be used by you and that Lord even as today or in the days to come as you provide opportunities for us to share in such a way that would draw somebody else closer to you father we willingly give ourselves to do that we want to please you we want to do those things that that you want us to do simple as that and as Paul says everything is good that you've created and with Thanksgiving we give ourselves to you today So Lord take and use us as we uh, minister to one another today we ask for your spirit to be mighty and bold in us in Jesus name Amen